You're listening to the Business with Purpose podcast with your host, Molly Stillman of stillbeingmolly.com. This podcast takes you behind the scenes with some of the world's most generous entrepreneurs, from the CEOs of mission-driven brands to directors of small community nonprofits and everything in between. Molly is sitting down with men and women who believe in changing the world not only through their personal lives, but also their professional careers. And now, here's Molly. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Business with Purpose podcast. If this is your first time listening to the show, welcome. It's so nice to have you. We have over 46 episodes in the archives that you can listen to. So many amazing entrepreneurs, CEOs giving their business tips, how they got into business, and how they are running their businesses and their lives with purpose and meaning. I would love for you to check them out. If you are a regular listener of the show, hi, welcome back. and <laughs> Thank you so much for your support week in and week out. It means the world to me. Today, I have a little favor to ask. Would you just take a moment and would you share this show with a friend? If there is a friend that you think would love and benefit from this show and the stories that these entrepreneurs are sharing, I would be honored if you would do that. Could it be on Instagram? It could be on Facebook or Twitter or just in person when you're telling your friends about podcasts you like to listen to. Would you share this show with them? Um, And be sure to tag me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I'm at stillbeingmolly and you can use the hashtag business. Business with Purpose podcast. And so I can see you guys sharing the show with your friends. Also, would you take a moment to head on over to iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast and leave a review? I read every single one of the reviews and they really, really, truly mean the world to me. I want to just read this review by Bren Marie. She says, this show is amazing. Molly is so inspiring and relatable. I especially love the episode with Laura Casey. It was just fabulous. If you're looking for a podcast that will make you laugh and cry and interviews business owners that desire to make a difference in this world, this is the podcast for you. This is quickly becoming my favorite podcast, and I get so excited when I see an episode in my feed. Thanks, Molly, for creating such a meaningful show. Uh, Thank you, Brent, for the awesome review. And it's seriously, I don't think you guys have any idea how much it means to me. So thank you so much. And if you would just take a moment out of your day to do that, I would I would jump through the phone or computer and hug your neck. Now, today, my guest is Ren Young Ho, who is the founder of Matter Prince. Now, she is all the way in Singapore, and so it was just so cool to talk to her and find out more about her, her life, how she got started, and to think that we were talking about you know something that is so interesting and so fun and so fascinating, and just hearing her story of Matter Prince, and she's all the way on the other side of the world. Technology is awesome. So... You are going to love Ren. She has such a fun personality and she's just so wise and intelligent. I just adored our conversation. So I hope you enjoy this episode and this conversation with Ren. Hi, Ren. Welcome to the show. Hi. I'm happy to be here. I am so excited to chat with you, especially because we are literally connecting on opposite sides of the earth. You are (laughs) in Singapore, correct? Yes, 12 hours away. Yeah, so it's morning there. It's night for me. And I just think that, I don't know, it's one of those things. I just think, I think technology is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. So we are going to just go ahead and dive right in because I'm so excited to hear just the whole story behind Matter and hear your story of how you got involved and and all of that. So, Ren, I'm going to have you give what I have all my guests give, and that's the Ren 101. So tell us your story. Tell us how, uh, you know, what is what has happened in your life that led you to where you are today? Oh, wow. It's all that connecting the dots, looking back kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um, 
So the Ren story is long, but um, just to give a few highlights, I guess, I think of the things that are most relevant that let me, and my milestones in that sense, that led me to, to where I am here now. Um, growing up in Singapore, which is this little red dot, tiny island uh, in Asia, uh, we're a very privileged island um, amidst our Southeast Asian neighbors. And I think my first turning point was probably when I left um home at 18 mm. and worked and traveled and volunteered in the countries around here. And I think uh, Singapore's education system is pretty straightforward because we're so small, it's quite insulated. And I think when I left uh, Singapore at 18 and took two years out before university, um, I was really exposed to the difference in quality of life, difference in opportunities that um, our neighbors had compared to us. And that mm -hmm. for me was just one of my first realizations that, oh, wow, like, you know, life is inherently kind of unfair in the sense that where mm. you're born makes such a huge difference to where you are. Yeah. So that was my first kind of like, wow, I want to spend um, a huge portion, if not all of my life, working to realign the opportunities made available to, to people because mm -hmm. we're all the same wherever we are, um, except that we're not in material yeah. conditions. So. Yeah. That was one. So doing that made me realize that, you know, I want to study the differences between people. I want to study the systems that um, put people where they are, our interactions, the systems that govern us um, and so on. So I chose to study sociology in university. And that was another big turning point because um, initially before, I guess, before um, studying that and doing my final thesis, I wanted to uh, go into an NGO, I wanted to be a diplomat, I wanted to join the UN, etc. These grand ideas of, um, I guess, changing the world through those uh, structures. But when I was in, I was studying in the London School of Economics, and um, my thesis became about social entrepreneurship, which mm. at the time was a new thread of thought and area of study about how business can be a positive force for good. And I shadowed about six entrepreneurs in the UK, all who were running their own businesses that combined profit with purpose. And I thought, wow, that is a fantastic model. And when I interviewed them, the thing that came out most strongly was the idea that they are not motivated by um, a sense of altruism. It's not about a sense of sacrifice, about giving up of something in order to make someone else's life better. It, they were motivated by a sense of agency, autonomy, um, purpose. They wanted uh, to pursue that life because they thought it was what would make them most happiest. So they were not giving up anything. So it really redefined the notion of what doing good meant. Mm -hmm. And for me, it reali I realized that doing good for others doesn't mean doing less for yourself. It means just doing good for everyone, involve yourself included, um, and yourself can benefit very much from that. So three years of that and, and that thesis made me realize like, okay, you know what? Combining business with um, purpose, profit with purpose is something that I really want to delve into and, and look at deeper. Um, I then came back to Singapore and I guess, I don't know how much you know about Singapore, but um, uh, one of the more, I guess, things that people know besides the fact that chewing gum is not allowed and that we also still have caning and stuff like that. <laughs> wait, wait, that, wait, hold on a second. I know, oh, I know. Let's not, I let's not get into that. This I did is not, not about that. I did yeah. not know this. Yeah, no, well, it's, it's actually interesting that you said that because um, one of my questions for you is going to be like, 
what is life in Singapore like for, you know, because I was actually having this conversation with my husband um, when I was telling him that I was going to be interviewing you. And I was just like, oh, I really, you know, I love this company. Her story just is so, just seems so interesting and fascinating. And I just, I can't wait to (laughs) to talk to her. And Mm. and I was like, but you know what? I'm going to admit, I don't know that much about Singapore. Like I, yeah. I'm just going to admit ignorance. <laughs> that I don't know much about Singapore other than where it is on the globe. <laughs> you know, that's, that's about well, the it. Fact, honestly, the fact that you know where it is on the globe is already a champion feat in itself. Some people, <laughs> when I, when I, you know, when I say I'm from Singapore, they're like, Oh, Singapore, you know, like part of Malaysia or like, you know, part of, part of China somewhere in Asia. Um, and so we're very, very, very small country. We're like 50 years old. Um, yeah. We've only been independent since 1965. So very young in that sense. Yeah. Um, it takes maybe 45 minutes, well, maybe one hour, I give it that, to drive from one end of the country to the other. Wow. Um, so we're very small and we have 6 million people. It's pretty dense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I can tell you more about about that. Yeah. Well, no, but, but, <laughs> but I guess continue going back to we can we can get back to that. But uh, yeah, so yeah. You, were, you were saying that chewing gum's not allowed, and they're still caning. So. <laughs> oh no! Now I've said that. Now no. all your listeners are going to be like, "Those are the two things no, I'm going to remember no. about Singapore." <laughs> no, that's why I want you to tell to tell us all the awesome things about <laughs> Singapore. <laughs> there, there are. I mean, Singapore. Well, that's why it's interesting, right? Like, yeah. There's so many awesome things, but there's also a, a huge amount things that I think uh, sometimes don't make sense or do but that's a whole other discussion yeah. but anyway <laughs> yes. one of the things one of the things about Singapore that uh, that is often said that we fight against is that Singaporeans are not creative or Singapore mm. is not creative mm. I think even Steve Wozniak like came to Singapore and was like Singapore is not creative which obviously created an uproar here oh, but wow. um, truth be said it definitely is true that and this happens in a lot of Asian cultures as well where education and the merit of education is usually about providing tracks to professional careers when Mm -hmm. I say professional I mean like doctors lawyers um, uh, engineers like you know strong profession where there is quite a lot of job security at the end of it so my even myself like acknowledging that I'm a creative person sometimes it's a bit difficult to do and I think the last five to seven years in Singapore, creativity has definitely been held up a lot more as an ideal value. But I, I feel like when I first came back, there wasn't really a very strong creative community. And so one of my, well, my first business when I came back with two other partners was a co-working space. I'd experienced mm. uh, the Hub London, which was a co-working space there, working in like this big warehouse, open desk, when co-working was just not a thing where it was just a funny idea of renting out a desk right. to different people and having them all work in the same space. Yeah. And I really wanted to bring that sense of community to Singapore. So I started that um, and that was about three years old. In the end, we closed because of uh, business factors, not having enough capital, a lot of competition, etc. But that experience really taught me that building a community, whether digital or real, is all about emotion and resonance. Yes. And that people coming together with shared values um, is one of the strongest things you can do in order to overcome and accommodate and value difference and mm. diversity. Mm. Um, it also made me realize from a business point of view that uh, it was a lot of learning um, in terms of knowing what you're good at, what you're not, um, how to align your resources and capital to a business model, etc. Yeah. Um, so that one 
closed down. Um, I tried to do a kind of Kickstarter for Asia, um, which was about technology. I had a technology partner, lasted about six months, didn't really work. Um, And if I look back, I think the the dots that connect it all is that it's always about bringing creativity from the margins to the center. Yeah. About building community and networks that enable creativity that is otherwise overlooked to be highlighted or to be celebrated. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really at the core of how matters started. Uh, if you look at it, like the first the first business of a co-working space, the product was really a space. It was physical. It was about the experience and the community. The second one, which was Kickstarter for Asia kind of thing, it, technology was the product. And I realized that um, where I landed on matter is that it was a kind of happy uh, alignment of where the product was something that I could contribute very much to. Like I'm not a tech person in the sense that I love it so much that it should be the product. I use tech to enable my product or to distribute my product, but it's not the product itself. At the end, I'm still a very nostalgic person. Like I love analog. I love writing. I use a fountain pen. I still have a notebook. Um, I love how seeing how things are made um, and my sociological background gives me a lot of um, interest into textiles, into how materials form cultural identity. And coming from Singapore, where I guess we're a very young country, the notion of uh, cultural identity and history and how that adds and how that's relevant to our future was always something that I think I felt very much for. Yeah. Um, so matter and how, well, it's quite a long story to where I am now, but matter uh, was an idea that I think I carried around with me for about five years before we actually kick-started. I met my co-founder in Mexico because I was working in hospitality there in a hotel. Mm. And we kept in touch over the few years, like creating this idea that like, you know, what if we could just create this community of people around the world of artisans, craftspeople, um, customers who loved items and apparel that were about uh, provenance, about how they're made and kind of this sense of shared values and also um, a business that celebrated the process of how something is made, not just the brand or the the the, the pure material of it. Yeah. And, you know, told the stories of how those garments were stitched, the prints behind them, even the colors and how they're made. Um, because that's how I shop, to be honest. Like I, I pick up items from my world travels. I know and cherish the story and person behind each item when I remember how I've picked it up and where it's come from. Yes, I'm the same so, way. <laughs> yeah, so bringing that together was something that um, we thought about doing. And then um, I took a road trip in India with my then fiancé, now husband, so we made it, <laughs> uh, <laughs> in a rickshaw. So we drove a rickshaw, which I don't know if you know what that is. It's like it's like a motorcycle with a cab at the back. Oh, open yeah. Air. You can... You can sit yeah, it's a very common like Asian thing you see in Thailand, you see in India. We drove that from North India to South India over like two weeks as a fundraising wow. journey. And I think that kind of that initiative where we raised about sixty thousand dollars for four different uh, organizations made me number one, like quite comfortable with navigating India on my own mm-hmm. um, and having it be a place where I could start matter and set up Mm. and two made me realize or just gave me the confidence to be like if there's ever something you want to do just do it now I mean you do something as as silly or as crazy as driving a rickshaw um, across India you're like you know what I can 
I can do other things. I should do other things that I've always thought about wanting yeah. to do but never did. Yeah. Yeah. So it put me in touch with actually a lot of people that I continue to work with today, people who um, work in the craft sector, who are in NGOs or who are also in their own businesses. And they introduced me to others. And honestly, it was one of those things where it just flowed and things connected from there. I then went back to India maybe like five, six times in the next six months to set up the production and supply chain. And then matter started and it's been three years since then. That is amazing. What I mean, just what a journey you've had and where where you've gone and where you've come <laughs> from. You. And yeah, it's amazing. Um, so I want to back up a little bit uh, because I just there are a few things you said along the way that I'm like, oh, I want to ask about that. Um, <laughs> well, first, so you left you. You were born and raised in Singapore and you left at 18. What was, did you leave because you just wanted to experience something else in the world? Did you leave for a purpose? Like what was the catalyst that made you leave at 18? Funnily, it's, well, it's because one of the reasons, there are a few reasons. One of it was I had been in like school and education systems for what, 12 years by Mm -hmm. that time because we enter school at six. And I realized that even with all that education, I didn't really know that much about the world in a real practical experiential sense. And I didn't really know that much about myself, what I cared about, what I wanted to fight for, what I wanted to suffer for, what I thought, um, my values. And I didn't know what I wanted to study in university. Like there were so many options, uh, doctor, engineer, astronaut, business, philosophy, literature. I have, mm-hmm. I have really wide ranging interests. So I wanted to make sure that I had a sense of what I wanted to do with my life before I dedicated another three years in university towards that. Right. So that was one big reason. The other big, I guess, catalyst or supporting factor was I think gap years at the time was just starting to become like an accepted thing Mm -hmm. in the States and the UK and so on. Not so much here, but I think, uh, that was a uh, gave me the confidence to be like, okay, you know, other people take gap years in Singapore at eighteen. Actually, the boys go to national service, mm. so for two years they go into the army and they do basic military training. They do they get sectioned into uh, different units, whether it's infantry on the ground or the navy or the air force and so on. And that's two years, or actually, at the time it was two and a half years. Wow. So from eighteen, they spend two and a half years of their life in the military, and I thought, you know, if boys at 18 go in in my country, go for two and a half years into the military before going to university. I feel that I could do the same, but go to the school of life instead. Yeah. So that was, that was really the multitude of reasons. What, and you said that when you were in the UK, you had gotten connected and, and had gotten, had really, I guess, um, trying to think of the best word to describe it but you've you you got a passion for social entrepreneurship where did that passion Mm -hmm. stem from and was it just something that as you began to experience the world you became interested in it or was there something along the way or something from your childhood that made you passionate about that I think it's definitely to do with my upbringing and my family Mm -hmm. so my parents um run their own business and they've always has incorporated a sense of responsibility into it, mm-hmm. uh, almost from a natural point of view. It's like 
it's 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 not even called CSR. It's just something that you do. You know, as businesses, you are a force for good. You are reorganizing resources and people to produce a product that, and it's in the end, the net impact should be beneficial for everyone involved, not just your shareholders, but the environment, your employees, um, and so on. Yeah. So. I think from a young age, we were always exposed to that when we were um, interacting with my parents, when we were traveling as well. They always taught us to respect the stories of other people, especially those who were in different situations to us. And I think that sense of empathy and the sense of drive in making business a force for good definitely came from, from them. Was yeah. that something that was common among families in Singapore or was that something that looking back now you think was unique to your family? Well, it's tough to say. Like, you I mean, it's hard to say what is common to a people of a whole country, to be honest. Right. Like they hold the same passport in that sense. Um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily that common for the people of Singapore, but there is definitely a history of philanthropy mm-hmm. in the founding families of a country. And I think that's the case in any country. So in terms of like, what well, in Singapore, you have these things called clans. So mm-hmm. you have a lot of um, Chinese clan associations where uh, a lot of them are organized around different interests or different family lines. And these clans usually carry out quite a lot of philanthropic uh, activities. And a lot of businesses and businessmen and women would consider philanthropy a natural part of the business in terms of helping the community around it. So I think that ethos and philosophy is not original. Um, Whether it's practiced uniquely by us or overall in Singapore compared to other countries, it's a bit difficult to say. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. And I guess it's just one of those things where sometimes, you know, I mean, obviously in the United States, each state has such unique characteristics and cultural aspects Mm. to it. Um, You know, Mm. people from New York are incredibly different than people from Alabama. (laughs) People from California (laughs) are incredibly different than people from Virginia. Um, And even within states, you have, you know, I grew up in, I live in North Carolina now, but I grew up in Virginia. And even Virginia can really be divided into three or four different sections where the cultures are so vastly different. But you can, you can really see you know, and so I guess that's why I was curious because, like, when you think about if, if Singapore is a country that you can really drive across the entire thing in an hour, True. that's essentially mm. the, the corner of Virginia. And the corner of Virginia mm. has very uh, unique aspects to it that you know that that person is from that area. And there's mm. very similar um, styles of parenting, there's similar styles of, uh, you know, what types of sports people are passionate about. I mean, it's just, yeah, there's yeah, so yeah. many things that can be really intertwined. So I just wasn't sure yeah. if that was, if you saw some of those things growing up in Singapore. Well, I mean, this is like, it's it's so interesting, the whole I so-called phenomenon of Singapore as well. Like, I mean, it's very, very small. I would say maybe it was more similar um, previously, but I guess the usual stratifying factors are usually, um, I guess, economic uh, status and class, as well as ethnicity. Mm -hmm. So those two things are things that are, I guess, um, talked about in Singapore at the moment a bit more than than before. So now I would say our Gini coefficient, and Gini coefficient is like an index of inequality um, Mm. in a place. 
And even though our GDP per capita has risen in the last 50 years as an independent country, i.e. everyone has gotten richer um, and so on, our inequality index has actually increased as well um, in that time. Interesting. And I mean, personally, I'm still, I want to dedicate like a portion of time to looking at why does capitalism drive inequality, it seems. Mm. Um, So, but that's, that's one whole like other conversation and topic so because of that i would say you can probably feel maybe a bit more differences than before because of that over the the past few years in terms of like cultural differences i would say that one of the main priorities or feelings among all of us right now being also just turned 50 years old is that um, defining or creating in that dialogue of defining what is the Singaporean culture. So mm. a lot of that is also around ethnicity. Like we are maybe 70% Chinese, um, 20% uh, Malay, and um, I'm probably getting these percentages wrong, 5% Indian and 5% Eurasian, mm. something roughly along those lines. And in terms of housing, and I, I say this because I think the the physical and geographical arrangement def- and, and your physical neighborhood and infrastructure, a lot of that determines culture. Your env- a lot of your environment determines culture. So when you have the, this kind of split, 90% of Singapore lives in what we call public housing. Mm-hmm. Um, public housing is uh, what we say HDBs, they are high-rise uh, flats. I don't know what your image of public housing is, but Singapore's public housing is amazing. Mm. Um, I mean, as I understand in other countries, it's not so. Right, um, yes. But um, what, something interesting that um, most people, I guess, not from Singapore also don't know about and debate about is that the allocation of that housing along ethnic lines is actually set as a quota wow so you don't so you don't actually have locations where let's say um you'll find an entire you 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 don't have ethnic enclaves basically that Mm -hmm. you find in other cities around the world or you have less of that because housing is regulated in that sense which i think i mean there's a there's a ongoing debate always about the for and against um in the in what that creates because It's quite rigid in the sense that, uh, well, it's rigid. People don't get to choose. Um, but on the other hand, you don't get uh, ethnic enclaves and you force um, integration in that sense. So I guess, I mean, it doesn't really answer your question of like, what are the differences and similarities in Singapore? But mm-hmm. it gives you a bit of background to kind of understand how this city state is uh, organized. Oh, absolutely. No, and that's, um, that's, I mean, it's definitely something I would not have I mean, like I said, I, I just don't know much about Singapore. So I didn't, mm. you know, I didn't even know really the breakdown of ethnic backgrounds. Um, mm-hmm. I would have actually thought that there would have been more. You said it's it's Malay. It's people yep. from Malaysia. So I would have thought there would have been more Malay than Chinese. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's actually I'm kind of looking it up right now because I was wondering about my stats. It's 76 percent Chinese, 15 percent Malay, 7 percent Indian. Oh, wow. Just the majority. Yeah. So when, I mean, just if we step 50 years back, yeah. the fact that Singapore was majority Chinese and, and being part of Malaysia was um, one of the areas of contention which led to why we um, 
became independent as opposed to being part of Malaysia. Right, right. Now that makes that makes sense. Um, yeah. Now, so I want to go back or I guess forward <laughs> to uh, matter. Mm. Now we've talked, we, we've kind of brushed over what matter does. Um, and, but I want for those that are listening that maybe haven't heard of matter or have maybe just kind of come across a picture of um, some matter products um, on Instagram or something, and, and they don't know a lot about matter. Can you tell us mm-hmm. all about matter, what matter is and, and the vision behind it and, and mm-hmm. all of that. Okay. I always, struggle a little bit with like telling the story of matter depending on where we're coming from (laughs) but Mm -hmm. I would say I would say at at its heart matter is about storytelling and community Mm -hmm. okay from from a larger point of view so what we do is tell the stories of cultural and heritage textiles we go into different areas of Asia right now primarily India and search out the most amazing stories and craftsmen and processes and techniques of making fabric and turn that um, reinterpret it with modern design, um, with playing with white space and um, edits to curate that into apparel for um, our modern conscious consumer. So that I would say that's it in a nutshell. Um, so we work with different artisan communities, seven at the moment um, in India and exploring Vietnam as well as Indonesia. Uh, across maybe five to six different techniques. And I think by now we've done maybe 30 different prints um, and turn those fabrics into um, wearable travel wear like uh, the lounge lungi or the side swept dhoti and uh, the classic white leg shapes and silhouettes that are uh, inspired by traditional Asian styles but updated with modern tailoring. And we are primarily a digital company um, so everything, almost everything that we sell is online. We tell those stories direct to our customers. And um, our mission, or I guess if you were to ask, how do you summarize why it is what you do? It's our so-called motto or slogan is change beyond textiles. In the sense that we see um, this community being made up of three parts One part is the artisans that we work with, the craftsmen in rural villages and communities around Asia. Um, The second part is designers. We truly believe that uh, working with designers in a collaborative manner to create different prints, to expose them to the ways that fabric works, um, is important in order to ensure that this process um, remains sustainable and a source of livelihood for Mm -hmm. many people. Mm -hmm. And then the third is our customers. Our cust- educating our customers on fabric, there's two parts to it. One is, I mean, just the material itself from an environmental point of view. Why is organic cotton better than cotton? Why mm-hmm. is cotton possibly better than polyester, even mm-hmm. though that's a that's an ongoing debate? Um, how much do dyes contribute to wastewater? Mm-hmm. And as well as the process of fabric itself, like what is block printing? Um, who is the person that um, block printed this? Why is it important that we uh, maintain this cultural practice of making fabric instead of just making it by the thousands of yards in the mills or, or, you know, why is this something to be celebrated? Right. And why is it um, sometimes better to spend more on a single garment rather than spend less on fast fashion that you buy and throw away after wearing it once? Um, So we kind of want to kind of create these conversations around value around fabric, around um, production processes, around environmental impact of what you choose to buy, simply because we believe that 
where and why something is made does matter and what we as all of us consumers and customers and um, what we choose to do with our dollar and what we choose to buy and what we choose to talk about is also important it shapes the world that we want to live in yes yes I love that so much. And I love what you said um, about educating consumers and your customers on why it's important to care about these things. And because mm. it and it is such a unique, you know, and I'd be interested to know kind of how you guys market around the world or, um, you know, especially since you being in Singapore, like what what does it what does the market look like in other countries versus, you know, what it might look like in the United States? Um, you know, do you find that you run into similar issues of having to really bust through that the fast fashion culture more so in the United States as you do other countries? Or do you think this is something that's just a common problem everywhere? Or where do you find that the education is heard easier if that makes sense or where do you find that the education is kind of you sometimes maybe feel like it falls on deaf ears my disclaimer is that this is a massive generalization yeah i totally understand uh, i would say i would say that um in terms of we're talking about great like swaths of country to generalize about um we have we've shipped so far to about 46 different countries and mm-hmm. maybe over 200 different cities so we have a very multicultural audience yeah i would say that um from what i can see european and scandinavian customers and countries have have more awareness and willingness to pay a premium for a product where the value is in its process, mm. not in the final, not not in its visible final form in that sense. Right. I think um, to understand the importance and the value of that supply chain integrity, um, I think our customers from those parts of the world seem to be more sensitive and more aware to those differences. Yeah, that, that makes said, perfect sense. That said, I, I mean, one of my, like, uh, what I one of the moments that I remember most is like we were doing a pop up in Singapore, um, in a typical shopping area here, and I had a customer that come came in and she was like, "Why would I buy this? It's like, it's it's so expensive. It's like three times the price of what I can get at H and M or at like Zara or Mango, and you know the fabric it, it doesn't look any different or any special. It's just it's just it's just so expensive. It doesn't seem worth it." I talked to her, I, you know, explained about our process and why, you know, what we believe in terms of um, what a piece of apparel should cost and the value behind the processes of it being made, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And she was during her lunch hour and she, I think she worked in a bank or in an insurance company and she just left and was like, okay, left. And actually the next day she came back during her lunch hour and was like, you know what? I thought about it and I really like the product and I'm going to buy it. Mm. So I I mean, it's just one story of one person um, changing their mind. And this is what I, I always say is that every single person we meet is an opportunity to create the matter effect, which mm-hmm. is to change that person's mind, to get them thinking, just right. to get them thinking about where their stuff comes from. Could be clothes, could be food, could be whatever they buy. And so treat every conversation not as an opportunity just to convert someone to be a buying customer, but just to talk with them and find out why 
what why they buy fast fashion, what their concerns are, what they care about. Um, because I don't want to take a kind of preachy attitude that you should do this because it's good for the world. I strongly right. believe that appealing to people's emotions and celebrating the beauty of what we do is much more can create a lot more impact than being like the world is going to end if yes. you treating it with this way you know yeah. it's kind of like the tragedy of the commons we can't beat people over the head with the negativity of their individual actions it's doesn't work like that i could not so, agree more i love that so much because that is so much of what my goal is i mean just in a lot of ways it's it's a big goal of my blog but it's also a part of the reason I started this podcast is because I, I want to just start having those conversations with people because a lot of the times I find when I when I talk with people about why I've changed the way I buy and why mm. you know what my buying habits are and I and I realize that this is something that people just don't know about and then mm-hmm. there can be a very and I I I'm also going to say that this is a generalization and this is not the case of everyone. (laughs) But I have found as somebody who tries to make this conversation open and welcoming and even fun and and educating. And and, I mean, you know, to to say that um, generally I have found that a lot of people that are in the ethical fashion space can some can come off as preachy and and I don't ever want that and I don't think I mean you Mm. definitely don't sound like that and I that's why I love uh people like you and um Mm. and because you know it's one of those things where sometimes people who come from the ethical fashion space can can approach people who have the fast fashion mindset or like shopping at forever 21 or h&m and they make them feel bad Yep. for shopping at those places yeah. or they make them feel bad for liking fashion. And I'm like, wait, no, we don't have yeah. to. Fashion can be great. It can be fun. It's a way to express ourselves. It's a way to be creative. Yeah. You know, it can make, I mean, yeah. when a woman puts on a dress or a pair of pants or a shirt that makes her feel beautiful, that can completely transform her mood and how yep. she interacts with people. Yep. And I mean, it, that's totally. our... That's our first impression is when we get dressed. Mm. So fashion mm-hmm. itself isn't bad in and of itself. Mm. It's how mm-hmm. we treat the people that are making the things that we wear. It's how yeah. we treat the environment that we work in. It's it's how we mm-hmm. consume and how we we have this mindset of if I don't have the newest, latest thing, then I am not you know, good enough. I'm not beautiful enough. I'm not smart enough. Whatever it is, it becomes yep. this, I, yep. this cycle of I'm not enough. And so brands, you know, the big brands, the big box brands, the fast fashion brands appeal to the, if you wear this shirt, if you wear this dress, you will be beautiful. Yep. You will feel beautiful for a moment yep. until the next yep. dress comes out. Whereas from yep. the ethical fashion side, I love how brands... You know, for me, when somebody compliments something I wear, I go, oh, thank you so much. You know, let me tell you about the artisan that made it. And I get to tell a story. Whereas, like, if I wear a dress from Forever 21, there's no story behind that. 
Yeah, and that's what a lot of our customers say. It's like they get, I mean, because our pants are fairly unique, when they wear them, they often get people coming up to them and being like, I love your pants. Or I love where this, like, I love what it is. Like, yeah. where did you get it? And it starts a conversation. Right. You know, and, and yes. I w- I'll always remember how, you know, a customer wrote in and was like, I was in a farmer's market in Guatemala and I saw someone else wearing matter pants. And I the two of us it. looked at each other and approached each other and started talking. And I think, you know what? That is like what I live for. Yes. <laughs> that <clears throat> we had another customer who wrote in and was like, I'm going to Jaipur. Can I meet your block printers? And we were like, sure, that is awesome. So she went, uh, we introduced him, and she introduced her to our block printer partner, Kushiram, who's in Jaipur. He's like a fourth generation block printer, um, super young, like 28, very excited working with his father, Mm -hmm. did a design degree, and wants to transform um, block printing. And is very innovative in that sense. So she went to visit him, did a block printing workshop there, and sent us photos of them together. And I think that's just wonderful. And I think... Like you said, it's not about beating people over the head with what they should think. It's right. like starting the conversations that gets them thinking so they can reach their own conclusions. Right, exactly. And I love that yeah. you said that the story of seeing this, uh, the woman seeing another person in the market. Because I totally do the same thing with, you know, if I'm in an elevator and I look down and I see the person next to me is wearing shoes from the Root Collective. I'm like, I know where you got your shoes. I know who <laughs> made those. Or, yeah. if, you know, if I see somebody else wearing Elegantes or I see somebody else, you know, wearing something from crochet kids or you know whatever it is like I I it's like I feel this connection to them and I go hey I know Mm. where you got that and isn't that so Mm -hmm. cool how this is made and and oh you Mm -hmm. know I want to see who signed your tag you know I Mm. think that's just so cool that you it it creates this very personal uh, aspect to fashion that can get really removed when you just go to a mall and shop yeah totally so for people that, um, you know, as we kind of start to wrap up here, I would love for you to kind of share um, just some of your experience having, you know, when you started Matter, um, you know, what did that experience look like? And what are some of the things that you have learned in your first three years of um you know, of really being in business. And, and I, I know, I know that that's a very large weighty question. Um, yeah. But for, for somebody that maybe, you know, doesn't know much about, about matter, or doesn't know much about ethical fashion and, and doesn't know much about this aspect of the, the business aspect of it. What are some of the things that you've learned and what have the, what did those early days look like for you? Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, I've actually, well, I've talked to quite a lot of people who are starting their own business, yeah. especially in the area of um, fair trade production and so on, who ask um, a lot of questions. Like I'm mentoring like um, through a, um, a program here as well, like a younger company around artisan production. And mm. I guess the first thing I would, I would say to, uh, let's go chronologically. Um, the first thing I would say to someone who's thinking of starting a fair trade production business is to, to spend time, really spend time thinking about what your impact is. Mm. So, and, and how that is going to be measured and how that is going to be integrated into your business process such that when you scale, the impact scales. So I think that I say that because even for myself, in the beginning, I wanted to work with craftspeople, but I also wanted the garments themselves to be stitched 
um, at the same place and the fabric to come from the same place. Right. And it was honestly, it was really difficult to do. So then I had to decide, let's split the production from fabric um, with the artisans and communities and what they're good at and work with a fair trade factory instead. So develop like a hybrid production chain. And that's important because I had to drill down and be like, what kind of artisans am I working with? What does it mean to be an artisan? Is it just any, uh, is it just handcrafted fabric? If that's the case, am I going to work with, for example, a um, block printing factory that is two years old where the people are newly trained and it's set up and it's that valuable just because it's handcraft. And I think really narrowing down and for me thinking about, no, actually, it's about preserving cultural heritage and telling stories of that generational transfer of knowledge as well as history. So then that made me realize, okay, you know what? I need to work and look for artisans that have practiced this craft for generations. So I go to Jaipur, I go to Sanganer, um, and that's where block printing has been practiced for hundreds of years. In Pochampali, where our ikat is made, that's where block print, uh, ikat has been woven for, let's say, 200, 300, even more mm. um, numbers of years. And the people that we work with often are multi-generational families or communities. Um, because the way a fabric um, community is organized is that usually the entire process is split up between households. So, for example, when I stay with our um, ikat weaver in Pochampali, Srinath, stay with his family, he'll take me to the household next door to see the yarns being dyed, then the next household to see it being warped and wefted, then the next household to see where it's being tied and dyed. And you have all these households organized in a certain way. And for me, personally, that's the value that I want to celebrate. So I know very clearly that my impact is in working with these artisans and it guides my business choices. So I created like this, you know, metric for how am I going to measure, what, what is the change? Um, what is my change theory? Um, what is the impact I want to measure? And what business process is that related to? And what is my why? Right. And I think spending right. the time to do that sets down these like clear boundaries. Yeah for that guides your choices because otherwise setting up everything in the beginning is just too crazy yeah and knowing and and for those who want to start a business with purpose I think the purpose is what drives us right and profit that has to come and that is the fight of getting a business off the ground but knowing the purpose and clarifying that in the beginning before it gets crazy Mm -hmm. um, is pretty important and also being able to refine that along the way and realize what I'm going to give up how I'm going to do this differently but revisiting that every once in a while um, is extremely important. Yeah. I um, loved that quote you yeah. said earlier about doing good for others doesn't mean doing less for yourself. I wrote that yeah. down because I was like, oh, man, that is that is gold <laughs> right there. That needs to be on a T-shirt, a bumper sticker. <laughs> like, that needs to be on all the things because, yes, I so agree. And, and, and like you said, being able to know that you can and should be flexible and refine your vision and refine your purpose as you, you know, as, as all entrepreneurs know, most businesses, mostly trial and error. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And that's the thing. I think the, the other complimentary thing I would say is that similarly, but um, complimentary from a business point of view is that there's so much uncertainty in the first few years of starting your business that it's really important to also set out um, what success means Mm -hmm. for you individually as well. 
Um, a lot of it depends on how your business is structured, where your funding is coming from, whether you're bootstrapping or beholden to investors and so on. But right. defining at the outset and periodically what success looks like. And that's not just in terms of revenue, net profit, margin, and so on. Even though those are important, it could be things like repeat customers because we want to cultivate long-term relationships, your average order value for us, or um, the number of people you're reaching out to, or um, what success looks like in what time frame. So I knew, for example, in my first year, I know I'm going to put X amount of money aside, and I know that by this time, uh, I want to have broken even on that before I put in more money. Mm. So being very clear on what risks to take and what success milestones would lead or would trigger more risk to be taken. Right. I think having that clear path, which is a very personal decision and practical, um, is quite important because otherwise I meet a lot of people who are at one and a half or two years who are like, I just don't know if I can continue. Like, I don't know if I want to. I'm emotionally tied to the business, but it's struggling. And I think developing that kind of like milestone and what success looks like um, as an entrepreneur, it's very important to um, keep yourself motivated, but also keep yourself very clear on why um, you're heading in a certain direction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my last question before we really wrap up. Um, so for people that <laughs> don't are, are in the camp of me and admit that they have they are ignorant really about Singapore, tell us a couple awesome things about Singapore that you love about Singapore <laughs> that and why it needs to be our next vacation destination. <laughs> oh, wow. Because um, I've looked up pictures and it looks beautiful. Mm, mm, it is. It's, it's a very, it's kind of a place known as Asia 101. Mm. It's like, if you've never been to Asia, come to Singapore. People, everyone speaks English. It's very easy. Everything works and use this as a bouncing pad to discover the rest of the country. But I would say, why come to Singapore? Um, the pause is not because I can't think of anything. It's because there are so many things. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. What are the uh, language, the main languages spoken there? English. English. Yeah, yeah. So we all learn like schools in English um, and we learn our mother tongue. So my mother tongue would be Chinese. Yeah. Uh, someone else's would be um, Bahasa Malay and so on. Yeah. So but English is our is our common language. That oh, also wow. was like quite a key uh, decision made by um, the founding government. Okay. Yeah. See, I, and maybe there's people <laughs> listening that know a lot about Singapore. They're like, really, Molly, you didn't know that? No, I didn't. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I would say one of the massive, huge reasons, and this is definitely true, is food. I think Singaporeans, Ooh. we really love our food. Like people will queue for one hour just to get their favorite like noodles or favorite like, stir fry something. So the variety of food that you get here, you can practically eat something from every country in Asia in Singapore. Awesome. Um, and also very affordably because like this, uh, we have hawker centers, which are basically... Imagine a massive market and mm -hmm. each uh, has like, I don't know, maybe altogether 100 different stalls and each stall is a different dish or each stall has like maybe five different dishes. Mm. So you're literally walking around a bazaar of um, different types of Asian food. So um, that is definitely one 
huge reason. Uh, well, to I love here. food and I love Asian <laughs> food. So that's pretty much I'm sold just based on that. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't need to go into anything else. Then. That's just like my one big reason. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. Is there anything um, else that that people might not know about Singapore that you would want people to know? Well, I want, like, I guess to counter my comment earlier about how there wasn't much creativity in Singapore is yeah. that I think there's a lot of excitement and um, new brands uh, coming up in Singapore that reflect um, uh, exploration of what creativity means in our context. So we have, you know, the number of like um, new stores, new brands that are coming up, the number of uh, like we just have the new National Design Centre, we have multiple um, book festivals, graphic design festivals, film festivals. Mm-hmm. So there's a, is a, a lot more that is emerging here in terms of communities of different people with different interests that, is, that gives a kind of really interesting insight into what, um, how creativity is being explored here. Um, there's always, like I think, a, an event going on or some kind of festival going on, and there's a lot more... Uh, taking over of public spaces um, that we never saw before. You know, things used to be a lot more um, confined to uh, buildings or malls or libraries and so on. But like, right. you know, we have we have like street parties, block parties, bazaars that are in open squares. Um, so yeah, there's just a lot more happening in a much more organic way. That as a visitor, I would say, if you just looked up festivals in Singapore or markets or bazaars. Um, there will be a lot to to travel for. That is awesome. Well, I am adding Singapore to my <laughs> my want to travel to list. <laughs> I don't know. I don't Fantastic. even know. I, don't have a, I clearly don't have a formal name for it. Um, yeah. But Ren, so uh, what is the best way for people to connect with you and Matter online? Well, for Matter, our social handles are at MatterPrint, so M-A-T-T-E-R, Matter, because that's what connects all of us, mm-hmm. and then Prince, P-R-I-N-T-S. Um, our website is MatterPrince.com. For myself, my name is Ren, R-E-N. Actually, just a small trivia piece is Ren actually in Chinese means compassion. So I love that. that will be something that you remember. That's awesome. Um, yeah, so my email is ren at matterprince.com. So I'm, I'm happy to talk to anyone and just email me with your questions or insights and so on. I'll be happy to connect. Oh, Ren. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing the heart behind Matter. And just, I mean, I I want to have you back on the show just so I can ask you a bunch of questions about just life in Singapore and, and life traveling the world and how you ended up in Mexico. And <laughs> yeah, we'll talk for three hours after this call. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, and for those listening, um, be sure to check out Matter uh, and just show them some love. Um, I will also have all of the links to Matter website and social handles and all of that in the show notes um and ren thank you thank you so much for all that you've done and um i just i love your story and i will just be singing your praises (laughs) so thank you for being on the call with me tonight and i hope you have a great morning (laughs) yes thank you thank you for you know just creating the space and the platform for these conversations to happen as well it's very valuable my pleasure (laughs) okay how many of you now want to go visit singapore It has definitely been added as my bucket list place to visit. I 
adored this conversation and I just really loved hearing her heart and hearing her passion and just hearing all about how Matterprints works. I personally have a pair of Matterprint pants and they are so comfortable. You guys, they are so comfortable. And every time I wear them, I get so many compliments on them. People asking me, where did you get those? So you should definitely check them out. Again, thank you guys so much for listening. I'll have all the links to contact Matterprints and find out more about them in the show notes so you can check that out there. But I hope you guys have a great rest of your week and I will see you guys next time. Bye. 